One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. This is the word of the Lord. The subject of this passage today is community. And uh, not, a lo- not a long intro today. We're going to go right into it. I know what kind of day today is. So most people have three points. And the three points is usually go home, clean your house, prepare for the bowls. So today we're going to really uh, just move right into this. Three points today. The first part of this text, Jesus is telling us about the promise of true community. The second part, the middle part of this text Jesus is telling us about the components, the parts of true community. And the final part, the final part of this text, Jesus is telling us the power. Where do you get the power to have or to become a true community? So we have the promise, the components, and the power. We can say the promise, the parts, and the power for those of you who are more alliterative. First, we're going to go into the promise. And that is uh, in verse 12 to 20, the first section of this text. On this mountain, after intense prayer... Out of the disciples that Jesus had, he chooses 12 leaders. He chooses 12 apostles. And then he comes down off the mountain and he gives them the word of God. Now, why is that significant? What does this mean? And the answer, you really have to begin by looking in the Old Testament and ask, when's the last time that something like this has happened? In the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, God called together 12 tribes, 12 apostles right here, You have 12 tribes. And he sends Moses down the mountain and he gives them his word. He gives them the law. What's the purpose of the law? Now, the popular understanding of the law is this, that it's the way for us to find God, to have access to God and be saved. But if you really read the book of Exodus narratively, that's absolutely impossible. God didn't give his people the law and then save them. First, he saved them from slavery, and then he gave them the law. So the law was never, I mean, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the law was never the way to get God's favor, the way to get God's approval, the way to get forgiveness or salvation. So why did he give it to them? Why did he give them the law? If you think about what laws do, what is a law? Laws define a people. Laws define a nation. In Exodus chapter 19, if you read, and I believe it's printed in your call to worship, he says that you may be my treasured possession. 
And so what Jesus, what Moses, God says in the book of Exodus, he says, I'm going to make you into my people, a genuine community, a new society of people. I brought you out of slavery, and I'm going to make you into a new society of people. God says in the book of Exodus that the reason that the human race, the human community, it's unraveled, completely, completely rendered broken, why individuals at war with each other, why husbands are at war with their spouses, why families are at war with other families, why nations are at war with other nations is this. Your relationship with me has become unraveled. You are at war with me. Your relationship with me has become broken. And so when that relationship with me is restored, it's going to restore all human relationships. The possibility of all human relationships to be restored will be there. And so I'm creating this community to show the world that if, a res- that if you have a restored relationship with me, all the brokenness in our lives and in our society can be healed. And that's what it means when Jesus comes down from the mountain with his 12 disciples. And you see this because he gives them the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches them. He gives them the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this passage, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, or the summary of it, it's really a summary of all of his teachings Um, you're going to see that he's not simply just giving them a manual on ethical and moral behavior, moral and ethical prescriptions. That's not what he's doing. Now, even though you do learn a lot about how to live from the Sermon on the Mount, what he's really teaching us is this. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the next stage in the creation of a real community, a genuine community. Verse 17, he includes the Jews and the Gentiles. What what he's saying here is that my gospel transcends all racial boundaries. Not only will there be people from Judea, but there's going to be people from Jerusalem, but also Tyre and Sidon. And so the gospel transcends cultural boundaries. The gospel transcends racial boundaries. It's a whole new agenda. And Jesus is saying, when you enter a relationship with me, I'm going to weave you into a very unique community a stronger community, a deeper community. It's going to be more uniquely beautiful than anything you've ever imagined before. And that's really the first point. To be saved by Jesus means not just to have my individual sins forgiven. That's just the beginning. It's not less than that. It's way more than that. You're going to be woven into a new community. That's what the church is, a new community. Now, if you've got to think about this, this is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a restaurant city. Foodies, when you discover a new restaurant, when you discover a new dish, a new entree, admit it, think about this, you can definitely absolutely enjoy that on your own, but it's not like it, it's not like when you can share it with somebody else. Audiophiles, this is a music community, audiophiles, people who love music, you can't enjoy a song for real until what? You get to play it for somebody else. And as you listen and as they listen and as they enjoy it, then you enjoy your enjoyment of that is so much more. And why is that? If you think about why is that, it's because we're so geared for community, you can't have a full, you can't even enjoy a full aesthetic experience, a complete experience outside of it. You need community in your life. Same thing with self-image. Think about your self-image. A lot of people say, come on, your, self, your self-esteem should have nothing to do with what other people think of you. It shouldn't matter what anybody else thinks. We always say that. Yeah? Go ahead. Try it. Everybody in the world thinks of me as a very poor singer. But I think I'm a good singer. I think I have a great voice. 
So do you feel like your voice has improved? Do you feel like you've got your better singer as a result? You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't get a sense of self, not even a sense of self, without community in your life. There's no single musician or artist or writer or businessman, who, business people who step over all people just to make it to the top. You, even if you actually get successful, you can't get there without some form of validation, without some form of community in your life. You need community in your life. You want community in your life. It's one of the deepest needs of the heart. We're designed for it. We live for it. And yet, we can't generate it on our own. We can't produce it. If you're a leader in any kind of capacity, think about this. If you're a leader in any kind of capacity, what do you see? People are always getting offended by you. People are always getting slighted by you. People are always falling out with each other. There's always misunderstanding, miscommunication, misinterpretation. People are not honoring each other. Most of your career as a leader, in your career or wherever you are, even in the home, is what? Trying to keep all of your relationships around you from falling apart. That's really what a a large part of your career is going to be that. What hope is there? Jesus says this, power is coming from me to create it. It is a promise. The promise of real community. Hook into me. You get the promise of real community. And that's the first point. Now, what are the parts of this? What are the components of real community, genuine community? Now, <clears throat> there's uh, this overview of the Sermon on the Mount in this text. And Jesus says two things. There are two things that are characteristic of a genuine community that he's creating. One are the values that he has, the values that he brings with his, uh, with his uh, kingdom. And secondly, the relationships. It teaches us how we can handle relationships with other people. And he begins his Sermon on the Mount with a series of blessings and woes. You see this in verses 20 to 26. He says, blessed are you. And then later on, midway through, he says, woe to you. So you've got these blessings and curses. Now, what are they? They represent two sets of values. Two sets of values in the world. In verse 20, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom. For yours is the kingdom. In other words, I'm bringing this kingdom to you. What does he mean by that? What is the kingdom? If you think about it, what is it? A kingdom, at the least, is a concept of an administration. Do you know that within hours after the president's inauguration, within hours after the president's inauguration, they literally take care, they remove all of the former president's furniture, Eventually, they remove his entire staff and they replace it with a whole new staff and a whole new set of furniture. Everything's new. The White House gets completely overhauled within hours. Just within hours, it begins after the inauguration of the president. Why does that happen? That's what happens when a new administration comes in. It replaces the old. The former leader may have valued this, but not that. The new leader comes in and says, I value this instead, not that. The new value, I value the things that the former leader does not value. I, I espouse and I represent things that the former leader did not value. And I despise and I don't value things that the former leader may, may have upheld. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is saying, let me tell you what I value. This is what my kingdom, my administration upholds. 
And if you look at verses 23 and down, you see four woes, four curses. We're going to start with this. He says, woe to you if you are rich, if you are well-fed, if you laugh, and if all men speak well of you. In other words, these things represent four values, and the four values go like this. If you are rich, power and wealth, well-fed, because being well-fed connotes having plenty of sufficient food and clothing. So woe to you if you have power and wealth, or if you have comfort, or if you laugh. The word laugh, translated in the Greek, is to say that if you gloat, if you're gloating over others because of your success. So the four values go like this, power and wealth, comfort, success, you're laughing because you're successful and other people are not, and lastly, you have a good reputation. Cursed are you if you are wealthy, if you are comfortable, if you are successful, or if you have a good reputation. He says, if those are your values, you are cursed. If that's what you value in this world, you are absolutely cursed. Now, the second set of values, he says, my kingdom, blessed are you, verses 20 to 22. It's no surprise, but it's the parallel and the exact opposite. (laughs) He says, blessed are you if you are poor, meaning you are weak, powerless. Blessed are you if you are hungry, meaning that word is very, very rich. He's really talking about if you are dissatisfied, Because to have bread is to be satisfied in the Old Testament. So he says, you know, blessed are you if you are hungry, if you are not satisfied in your life, if you are not comfortable, you are not well taken care of. Thirdly, he says, blessed are you if you are weeping, if you're grieving, if you've experienced loss, if you've failed. And lastly, he says, if you are excluded, if you have a terrible reputation, What Jesus is saying here is, if you enter into my administration, the things that the world values are unimportant to me. And the things that the world despises are very important to me. Here, there are things that they don't value at all. I don't value certain things. I don't value power. I don't value comfort. I don't value success. I don't value a good reputation. And here are the things that I do value in my kingdom. The exact opposite. I value weakness. I value suffering. I value failure. I value exclusion. In fact, my power does not come through power. It doesn't come through wealth. It doesn't come through uh, success and, and a good reputation. My power flows through. If you want to experience the power of me, the power of God, it comes through weakness. It comes through suffering. It comes through failure and exclusion. What do you see this? The complete reversal of values. Absolutely remarkable. A complete reversal of values. On one hand, Jesus is not saying you have to seek after what he values. That's not what he's saying. He says, don't, he's not saying seek after being weak. But when you become weak, when you're weak, treasure it. Prize it. He's not saying refuse worldly blessings. He's not saying refuse power. But don't be attracted to it. Don't be attached to it. Don't be compelled by it. Be wary of it. Be careful about it. 
In other words, a relationship with Jesus creates in us a radical freedom so that things like power and comfort and success and recognition or status have no control over you. And once you have that, it's going to change the way you relate with other people, all of your social relationships. It's going to create a new community, a genuine community. Now, he moves on and he says, my kingdom, my community is also characterized by a unique relationship with other people, people on the outside. What does that mean? This is where Jesus is absolutely radical, completely, absolutely remarkable. When, when people say, people, so many people come to me and they say, you know, the trouble with Christianity is that you all are intolerant because you think you have the truth while other people do not have the truth. And I have tons of historical examples and proof to show you how intolerant Christians are. Now, first of all, any religion or any faith at all, any belief system at all, any ideology, it can become intolerant if people abuse it. But let me show you what Jesus says. He says, first, forget about the people who disagree with you. Forget about people who differ with you. Let's talk about your enemies, people who absolutely hate you and they want to kill you. He says, I want, you to, I want you to have two things, to demonstrate two things in relationship with them. First, verse 28, this is the inner thing. He says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for them. Pray for people who mistreat you. He's saying, when you see somebody who not only disagrees with you, but absolutely wants to hurt you, completely hates you, I want you to engage in an inner discipline in such a way that you drain yourself of any ill will towards them. And you do that by praying. Pray for them. Develop a burden for that person. Now, the world says, that's foolish. You, have to, you want retribution. You want payback. Protect yourself. Defend yourself. Remember, power and money, comfort, success, reputation, if these things are the things that you value, when they get threatened, you get anxious. When they get challenged or damaged, you get angry. When those things get lost, you're in despair. The gospel teaches us that the reason, why we do, the reason why we want retribution, first of all, is that our sense of worth is constantly threatened by how, when we deal with other people. They're insulting me and they're harming me. They're out to get me. Your sense of worth is threatened by that. Your sense of power, your sense of significance, your comfort is being attacked, Right? Your success, they may be threatening your success, threatening your reputation. And as a result, your sense of worth is threatened. And that's why you're anxious. And that's why you're angry. And that's why we sometimes fall into despair. But he says, I want you to drain yourself of all of your ill will towards that person. It's an inner discipline. And I want you to pray for them. Develop a burden for these people. I want you to to want them to flourish. I want you to want them to advance. I want you to pray for their good. Pray for them. And then he says, do good to them. The inner discipline is to pray for them. The outer discipline, he doesn't just say, pray for them, just don't hold back, nonviolence. That's not what he says, right? He says, I want you then, in turn, actively do good. What does that mean? Think about it. How do we treat people who disagree with us? How do you treat people who just insult you? Sometimes even unintentionally, but they insult you. How do you treat people who harm you? Oh, we're absolutely cruel. Even in the church, we are absolutely cruel. 
We like to destroy the reputations of people who disagree with us, people we just don't like. You know what gossip is? Gossip is a form of murder because you're murdering a person's reputation. What's the best thing? If you want to do good, what does it mean to do good for them? What's the best thing for a person? You know, you, know, you have this person in your life who lies about you or to you all the time, who's, who's mocking you behind your back all the time, who's gossiping about you all the time, who's oppressing you, oppressing other people or harming or trying to overpower other people. What's the best thing? Especially if this is a person that you consider your friend. What is the best thing for that person? Especially when you see that this is a pattern in their lives. You know, we like to see ourselves because it's a, it sort of feeds our sense of worth. Oh, but these people are drawn to me. So I want to I be good to them. I want to care for them. I want to nurture them. I want to listen to them. I want to hear them. Is that the best thing for them? Is the best thing to let them just continue doing that, but just to be a good hearer because no one's advocating for them? Is that doing good? Will they flourish? Will they become conformed to the likeness of Christ or the Father in that way? Will they flourish that way? Absolutely not. They will not. But if you have no ill will, if you've drained yourself of ill will towards that person, and then what's the, what's the best thing you can do for them? You confront them. You persuade them. Try to persuade them. You try to convince them. You restrain them if you have to. In some cases, you discipline them. Now, that probably works best in the church. I can't think of any other model in life where that works. Maybe a civil model, perhaps. You know, there's punitive measures. But in the church, the church is gracious. It probably works best in the church because in a local body, there is an authoritative presence, but there's also a practical community presence, and there's a biblical presence. So here you have this overarching presence of God there. And, you know, people say to me, well, what you, it sounds like you're saying is kind of hold yourself back. Uh, on one hand, you know, they, Christi- they criticize Christians because they say, it seems like people are just allowed to walk all over you all the time. What does it mean to do good to somebody? To let them just keep sinning against you? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Let them continue sinning against you? Let them continue sinning against other people? No, that's not what he's saying. Well, what about this passage where it says, there's a part where it says to turn the other cheek? It's one of the most taken out of context passages in the whole Bible because that's not what he means there. What Jesus, you know, remember, this is a culture where shaking hands was not normative. That's not how you greeted people in that ancient culture. How did you greet people in the ancient culture? You had them kiss you on the cheek. You turn your cheek to them. So Jesus is saying, I want you to drain yourself of ill will towards the person, and I want you to do good. I want you to confront. I want you to persuade, restrain them, discipline if you have to, but always with an open cheek. If they strike you on the cheek, always be prepared to welcome and to invite, but you have to confront. You have to, you have to drain yourself of ill will, pray, but you have to persuade. You have to discipline. That's love. That's love. And it works best in the church. Jesus is saying, here's how I want you to regard your enemies. Do not let them sin against you on one hand. Don't let them walk all over you on one hand. Don't let them walk all over other people. You have to address them. You have to confront them. You have to discipline them. But you must do it without a desire to hurt them. You must do it always with an open face. And you're going to take your hits. And you're going to get bruised. But you must always do it without a desire to humiliate them. 
When we're, when we're wronged, what do we do? The first thing you want to do is go on a rampage and you want to damage people. You're either going to go on the offensive and retaliate or you're going to withdraw from people because those are the two best ways to hurt somebody. Right? You can hurt somebody easily just as much by walking away from them as you can by walking towards them. Right? That's what you do. And whatever's going to maximize the damage, is what you're gonna, that's the option you're going to take. But both, uh, both approaches are so selfish because it makes you feel good. It makes you feel better. Jesus says, don't hurt them. Call them out, but don't hurt them. That's the outer work. The inner work, pray. It doesn't happen without that inner work. Without the inner work, you're going to go, I'm going to approach them, I'm going to address them, I'm going to convince them, I'm going to persuade them, but I'm going to show them, I'll show you what you're like. Jesus says, I'm going to create a new community, and I'm going to give you the resources, and I'm going to give you the power, and I'm going to give you the grace, I'm going to give you the heart to look at your enemies, people who are out to harm you, people who are out to kill you, with a desire for their flourishing. Now that is a tall order. Where do you get the power to do this? Where do you get the power to do this? The last two verses, at the very end of this text that we read, he says this. He says, Beloved your enemies and do good to them. And he goes on and says, I want you to lend to them without expecting anything in return. And your reward's going to be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he, for God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Now, in other words, Jesus Christ is showing us that what has to happen in your life, you know, he's basically showing us what really has to happen in your life to get the power to be in a community or to be part of a community like this. He says you need two things. The first thing you need is you need to shift in your understanding of sin. If you notice this passage, and and our reader didn't necessarily read the entire text But if you go through this text towards the end, that last paragraph in particular, look at Jesus' use of the word sinner. I'm going to paraphrase. Basically, he says this. You know sinners. You know what they're like. You don't want to be like them. They just love people, but they only love people to get something back for themselves. Sinners, they lend to people, but only because they want to make a profit. Don't be like sinners. How's Jesus using the word sinners there? He's using it. He's kind of taking a play on words. He's using it the way we use the word sinners. Sinners are bad people. Sinners are people who don't live right. And Jesus is kind of going along with that. But then he says, how should we be? And he says this in verse 35. You want to be like the most high because he's given mercy to who? He's given mercy to who? The good people then? Don't be like the sinners. You want to be like sons of the most high who gives mercy to who? The good people? Who gives mercy to the moral people? No, that's not what he says. To who? He says, we can be sons of the Most High. This Most High who is kind to who? Who are we? He says, you are the ungrateful. You are the evil. It's kind of peculiar. He says, on one hand, don't be like those sinners. He's, using our, he's taking a play on words. And then he turns it right around. He says, because I want you to be like the Father who's merciful to you, the ungrateful and the evil. Don't be like sinners. I want you. You are evil. Don't be like sinners. You, you're ungrateful. That's what he says. 
What Jesus is saying, they're sinners, but you're evil. I want you to redefine your understanding of sin because it goes far beyond just being bad. And you're never going to experience the power of the gospel. You're never going to experience the power of Jesus Christ until you do. Our understanding of sin is what? Breaking rules, breaking the Ten Commandments. Instead of surrendering to Jesus, you know, following the other things <clears throat> uh, and breaking the rules and, and breaking the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, I want you to go deeper than that because sin is so much deeper. You know what sin is? Sin is self salvation being your own savior instead of surrendering to Jesus Christ as your savior. That's why we value money. It's why we value power. It's why we value comfort. It's why we value success. It's why we value so much a good reputation because if I can just have a good reputation, then what? Then I I, I feel free. A good reputation makes me. In other words, a good reputation saves me. That's what you're saying. I feel like I have a sense of worth when I have a good reputation. But what happens is, in order to get that good reputation, you got to work. you got to work so hard for that. And you're going to be tired. And when you have it, you're not going to be grateful. When you work for all the things that you have, you're not going to be grateful. Why? Because you've earned it. You've worked hard for it. You deserve it. You're going to be entitled. That's why you can't love other people. It's why you can't love your enemies. It's why you can't pray for them. It's why you can't turn the other cheek. It's why you can't do good because I have to be superior. And I can't elevate those around me who don't deserve that. Now, religion says what? Religion says obey. Why? Because if I obey, then God has to bless me. You're trying to be your own savior. The irreligious... Their lifestyles, oh, we look at that. We just cringe at their lifestyles, don't we? Oh, they, they, they live whatever way they want. Why? Do you know why? They're just trying to be their own savior. So whether you're religious and obeying the rules, or whether you're irreligious and breaking the rules, both sides are just trying to be their own savior. And that's why both sides glow and they laugh at the other. They laugh at the other's failures. Until you realize that your heart is no different than anyone else. Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. And so the only prerequisite for access into this kingdom is what? Admit that I am evil. Admit that I am ungrateful. Admit that I am a sinner. You have to have a redefined view of sin. But the second part, he says, when you receive God's mercy, you may be evil, but you can be his child. You can be his son. That's the key. This is the key to renewal. No other religion, no other God, no other philosophy brings evil and God's love together the way Jesus is doing it here. He says, This is who you really are. You are evil but you are redeemable. You are evil, you are a sinner, but you are redeemable by grace. Now, common sense and civil law says what? Either you are evil or you are acceptable. Not both. You can't be evil and acceptable at the same time. But the gospel says this. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you are both evil 
and acceptable. You are a sinner, and yet you are loved. You are a sinner, you are evil, you are ungrateful, and yet you are sons of the Most High. Think about this. If the key to salvation, if your philosophy in life is, live a good life and I can go to heaven, it's going to make you intolerant. It's going to make you absolutely intolerant. You're never going to have, you're never going to experience genuine community in your life. You know, you, if, the key, if your key in life is be good, work hard, just, just, you know, do your best around other people and be open-minded, you're going to feel superior to other people who are not open-minded. You're going to be, feel superior to people who are not loving or not doing good. You're going to be, feel superior to people who don't work hard, who aren't talented, who aren't good people. You're always going to be comparing yourself with other people to get ahead. In your own way, cosmically, you are stepping all over other people to get promoted. That's really what you're doing. God is just a boss to you. But Jesus dying on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. These are people who are insulting him and mocking him. He says, Father, forgive them. They They just don't get it. They don't know what they're doing. That is going to make you tolerant. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus Christ. And he's naked. He's poor, and he's powerless, and he's suffering, and he's weeping, and people are hurling insults, and he's being excluded, and he's being insulted, and he's being mocked. Why? Jesus Christ saved you by the ultimate reversal, the ultimate reversal. He put, your, he put himself where you should have been, and he put you where he's supposed to be. He placed himself in our place and he placed us in his place. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is this. I am now at this moment experiencing the ultimate poverty, the ultimate suffering, separation from God, the ultimate weeping, the ultimate exclusion, the ultimate insult, the cosmic, the only, the only loss of reputation that will completely end me. That's what I'm experiencing. I've been separated from God. I'm experiencing hell right now on the cross. People are insulting me. People are murdering me. They're murdering my reputation. And yet, what did he do? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them. He wants their flourishing. He wants their flourishing. I'm separated from God completely. The wrath of God is falling on me. I have become the curse. Why? So that you can be blessed. Because Jesus Christ saved us through this incredible reverse of values. And when you see yourself in his place then, unconditional, undeserved, that's going to completely change your attitude towards other people. It's got to. It's got to. If you see that Jesus, in his incredible reversal of values, it's going to reverse your values. D.A. Carson, Don Carson says, the church is not made up of natural enemies. Sorry, the church is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What that really means is that natural enemies, people who would otherwise never be friends with each other, people who would look at each other on the street and say, they're so different, they're so weird. They don't think like me, they don't act like me. In the church, you come together. Worship is a beautiful thing. That's why it's so important to be plugged into worship consistently and be plugged into community groups consistently. Why? Because you have this unnatural gathering. It's supernatural that people would choose on Super Bowl Sunday to come together, completely otherwise would never be friends with each other, and yet say, I 
can love you. Completely unnatural. Completely supernatural. Let's practice that. Let's, it starts in our home. You know what marriage is? It's two people who are natural enemies, really, being brought together at, in a covenant. That's what it is. Two people, and that's why so many times, husband and wife, they say, you're weird. No, you're weird. No, you know, they go back and forth. They do that. You know why? Even 20 years later, they're still doing that. You know why? Because it's a natural, it's, it represents in many ways that holy gathering. It starts in the home. You have to plug into the life of the church. You know, so many times I hear from people, you know, in a church already this size, everybody's got an agenda. Everybody's got desires. Everybody's got their view of how church should be. And you know the one person, single-handedly, who has to hear all of it? Yes, that's me. I have to hear all of it, right? They're going to come to me. You know what they're going to say? We must have adult Christian education. We must have a better children's church. We, you know, when are we going to get involved in this city? Are we going to do it or not? You know what we need to do? We need to establish a fellowship community because I've never been to a church that doesn't have donuts before. I can't do this. I can't handle this. You know, and everybody's come to me. They're going to come to me. They have their agenda. When are you going to start visitations? When are we going to have marriage counseling? When are we going to do this? Are we going to have a counseling center? Are we going to do this? Now, what, really, what they're really saying is, I need you and I need God to really improve my quality of life. Really what they're saying is, I need this in my life. Don't you get it? And you're my pastor. I need this in my life so that I can increase my power, increase my comfort, increase my joy, increase my options and my worth. That's what I need. Really what they're doing is they're using their agenda and they're they're plugging into their agenda through the church. I need you to plug into the life of the church. What brings this church joy? The mission of this church. God's agenda for his people. Will you do that? It is a call. It is an amazing call. Jesus Christ died for that call. Will you adopt his values. For some of us, that means the life has to change. The lifestyle must change. Things will be reversed. Things that you want, and you know you're becoming a Christian, when things that you valued at one point in your life and you held on to so tightly, get loose. And you start to value things that you never thought you'd, that you'd, you'd value. That's what happens when the gospel in Christ comes near. Will you do that as a body? Let's pray.